Good afternoon, and welcome to episode 51 of the Deacon & Co. Show. My name's Deacon, the host, puppet master himself, and this is Wednesday, the 28th of July, 2021. Hope everyone's having a great day today, and uh, basically, what we got in store for you today is something that Deacon & Co. Show has never done before, and the guest, a friend of mine, is uh, an artist, but just not just an artist. He is an artist of many magnitudes, uh, and we're going to talk about that, I'm sure. And a dear friend of mine, uh, Chris Mason, uh, Livewire and Livewire Arts and Beacon Tattoo here on Long Island, New York. And it's going to be fun, uh, especially when you know somebody for a really long time. Um, uh, our uh, prior recording actually got um, postponed, uh, so it was the waiting process for me, especially when interviewing people, and when you know them, you're kind of curious to know what they're going to say when they're being recorded uh, for your show. So always try to provide the decoholics and the new listeners, thank you all, with entertainment, and doing so by providing you the news and the most recent updates from the Fab Four and the sports world, Metallica and sports, what is better? What is better than that? And I've been on, uh, been doing some other researches and updates and all that kind of thing with, um, you know, what's going on with all these tours. And, and another one was announced November 4th. And what they're doing now is uh, understandable. Uh, but it's frustrating because uh, the shows that they got going on, and I know I just released this information to you guys in episode 50, which I hope you all enjoyed. Um, released the information to you in regards to the 40th anniversary shows, and I've been waiting for this. I really, This is the one, this is the Mac Daddy. I'm telling you these are going to be the best two shows, and of course I'll report to you guys. I also said some things that I wasn't going to go to the other shows and whatnot because at the current time, I didn't think that it was feasible to do this, okay? So it's now a matter of going into different geographical areas of where you, I guess, would assume that, you know, uh, are not big Metallica fans or whatnot. But anyway, getting deals and stuff, uh, coupons, discount codes, that kind of stuff, uh, allowed me to be able to pay 100 bucks for a ticket um, and jump in a car and go down and see them. And why not? 40th anniversary. So not trying to do, you know, every single concert, because when you're obviously in a relationship, uh, even though mine and Nays is very close and comfortable with each other, uh, certain boundaries that you got to understand that are just unacceptable at a point to go see every fucking show is insane, and I know that. Uh, but now, with the cost of these things, November 4th going to be in uh, Florida, Hard Rock, uh, it drive down there, November 4th, drive down there, see that show, and, and then on my way back up to New York, November 6th, two days later, ATL Live, see that one too, it makes sense to do it that way, um, so see what's going to happen, and that that's a pretty good possibility, because what they're doing before... I got on this little tangent here. Um, they're they're doing pre-sale codes. You got to register to get a pre-sale code, and then you register, and if you are selected to get a pre-sale code, or rather, let me backtrack. Everybody gets a pre-sale code or something along those lines. Uh, registering, and then you are randomly selected to be able to buy tickets to the 40th anniversary shows. I promise you, I will be there. I'm going to stub hub it. I will be there. I'm not going to miss those shows. 
So I did not get one. I also didn't register because I didn't know about this until later on. So I registered for the November 4th, and I got pre-sale tickets. So I'll be there, maybe. Don't know, but bought tickets. So <laughs> we'll see what happens from there, what we're going to do and take it to that level. But uh, Black Album doing some cool stuff, and uh, they got some a bunch of new things that are being um, released on Spotify for Black Album. You know, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary, as I mentioned. Um, so the thing that they're doing is they have a bunch of outros and takes and stuff like that uh, with take fours and 36s and the demo to enter Sandman. So if you guys have a chance to check it out, it's on Spotify. You could type in Metallica new releases or Metallica demo, uh, for Sandman, and it's different. I'm not going to lie to you guys. It's a little different, but uh, it's it's kind of cool to listen to it. And uh, big, a big fan of the Deacon and Co. show, uh, Mel, uh, he knows what I'm talking about, too, because if you're a fan of the demos and listening to uh, how the band progresses and stuff like that, he sends me a lot of stuff that is like uh, outros and intro takes of the Beatles and Stones and stuff like that, which is really cool because I love hearing that stuff. And you can see how many times the band adjusted and, and did all these crazy things that before they felt that the song was uh, mastered and whatnot. So... Awesome with that. Mel, hope you're doing well, by the way. Uh, so now, with that being said, uh, those are the cool things that they got going on. And, uh, you know, I'm very excited for these up-and-coming shows to see what exactly, you know, is going to transpire with these set lists and how we're going to honor both uh, the anniversaries of Black Album and Master of Puppets. 35 years for Puppets, as you all are aware, and 30 for Black Album. So this is really this is really coming down to crunch time, guys. So the excitement level for me, I'm still chilling. I'm still like not processing this until I'm on that car ride to Louisville. Um, and I don't know what Nay's going to do, because I'm, I'm not... There is absolutely no fucking way that I'm going to be listening to anything else but Metallica on this fucking ride down to Kentucky, and uh, it just, it's going to be insane, so definitely excited, and maybe, who knows, maybe Nay and I will do a show live from the road, I don't know, I don't know, I'm just throwing an idea out there, whatnot, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, recapping, uh, what's going on with Team USA, so 25 straight wins for Team USA, okay, and that was snapped, they started off the exhibition round 0-2. And uh, going into playing France, France beat them by three, and now Team USA made a rebound today. They won 120-66 to versus Iran. Now, I'm not trying to be a hater here by any means, because I am a full, full supporter of Team USA, okay? But the problem is that you're going to measure up what you've learned and a loss to a team like France, who is a high-caliber team, who has been a contender for many years in the Olympic play. Now, you can't compare what you did to France when you play a team like Iran. Like, come on, I'm not trying to be a dick here. Like, really, I really am Team USA all the way. It's the only sport that I root for Team USA in. I root for Canada and everything else, and Germany and Argentina and soccer. So... Not a big fan of Team USA and what they do for the uh, you know rest of the sports because I just think that they're outplayed in every other aspect. So at least for us to have fucking one, okay, one that we dominate for many years. Yeah, this is this is a sensitive subject because this is my streak. I lived that 25 game streak and I was there. I went to the Olympics to see Kobe. I was there. 
So it's very, very sentimental for me for them to come out here and fucking blow this game to France. Like, fuck France. No offense, but fuck France. Uh, and really, the bottom line comes down to, uh, you know, rebounding. Next game is going to be uh, 8 a.m., Coming up on Saturday, they're playing the Czech Republic, and I mean the France beating the USA put France as a country's team in the NBA Finals, okay? And they're not strong enough to win that Finals. And a team with this much talent, uh, you know, realistically, should bring home the gold medal for us. I mean, on this team, you got. You know, three of the new additions that came in uh, later on, and which is a great thing because they they came in after the uh, finals were over because these three guys were in involved in the actual finals themselves um, with Devin Booker, uh, along with Chris Middleton, and along with I believe Jeru Holiday. So, I mean, you just have to turn around and look. That's the reinforcements. But the rest of the roster, uh, Ben Abadeo, Miami Heat, Devin Booker, um, like I said, Phoenix Suns, uh, Kevin Durant. Durant is the favorite on this team, the best one on this team. Brooklyn Nets, uh, Jeremy Grant, uh, Detroit Pistons, uh, Draymond Green, Golden State Warriors, Drew Holiday, as I mentioned, of the Bucks, Keldon Johnson of the Spurs, Zach Levine coming from the Bulls, Dame Willard is second best on this team behind Durant, coming from Portland. Uh, well-deserved, very shocked on this one, but very, very well-deserved. JaVale McGee of the Denver Nuggets, uh, Chris Middleton, Milwaukee Bucks, as I mentioned, Jason Tatum of the Celtics, and the staff on here is uh, Pop is coaching from San Antonio, Steve Kerr, uh, along with Lloyd Pierce, and a very shocking Jay Wright um, from Villanova University. So um may not shock a lot of people, but it shocks me on there. But um, good staff. Um, obviously, you know, uh, playing for strength and whatnot for this country, um, you know, it should not, this is obviously not the dream team that we all remember, and uh, it's not going to, uh, I think, make a difference with this one game versus Iran. So let's see what happens when they come out with the Czech Republic on Saturday. But Vikings from Iceland are the heavy favorite. Their coach has already guaranteed victory. How are you going to handle them? Uh, hard work. I think our team is ready to go up against the best in the world. We're not worried about them. Iceland may be tough, but uh, we're Team USA and we're going all the way. Yeah. So, as you can see, they're getting some help. A little help from my friends, Gordon Bombay there, Team USA Hockey. Love that movie. Love that movie. Uh, but Team USA Basketball, I really am pulling for them. So Saturday, 8 a.m. But uh, now, one last thing before I give you guys all the answers to the trivia question and get Mr. Mason on the show. Uh, NFL's got these COVID protocols here, which is going to be crazy because we're reporting to minicamp and all the drama with Aaron Rodgers. He reported, so he's going to get paid. He turned down some big bucks, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see. But keep his ass in Green Bay. Don't send him to Denver. I don't need any more competition than Patrick Mahomes in the division. So it's what it is there. Uh, but everyone is reporting, and uh, it's going to be great. Touchdowns are coming, I promise you. New episodes of the Touchdown Report. Two games going to this year in California. Super excited. So, again, trying to keep that level at a minimum until that actually happens. But uh, NFL protocols are going to start suspending players for 
turning around and not getting the COVID vaccine. This is un-American. This is out of control. And I really honestly feel, as an American... And that also includes, <laughs> don't fucking tell me that I have to get something that's not even approved by the FDA. Are you kidding me right now? So now you're going to turn around and you are going to now suspend people and forfeit games if I'm an owner. And I'm not saying that, that you know, I want to do this because you're not, there's not enough money in the world that's going to make me take this vaccine. And then the fucking crazy thing is, is here, take this vaccine and we'll give you free tickets to the New York Mets. Okay, so you're risking your life for 200 bucks. Really? Really? If I'm an owner, tell this guy, hey, listen, a uh, you know, million and a half, two million, three million. As I, I will give you that money. It's worth me that for me to pay that to you as a selfish person that I am to not take a forfeit. And that's what's crazy about it. And that's really, um, really just crazy about the whole thing is I, I really don't understand how the NFL can get away with this other than the NFL's king. So that's it. It's really, honestly, I don't have any other answers. It's not fair. I don't think it's fair. You can't tell someone that you have to do this or whatnot. But uh, the Chargers, I bring that up because the Chargers are in the bottom half of that, and there's four teams that are less than 50%. 50%, and... Um, Charges are one of the four, so I don't need to take any, um, you know, any type of, you know, loss on that, on the loss on that situation because nobody's taking the vaccine or whatnot, as selfish as that sounds. So also at the same time, we got to look at the perspective here as, you know, you certain teams, and, and Lamar Jackson is one of these guys who had this situation uh, just happened, he's got COVID again. So, like, you can't allow players to, I mean, yeah, everybody, yes, we have to move on and whatnot, but you can't allow people to turn around and be at full capacity as stadiums that, you know, they, around the players like that. It's, it's Yankee Stadium at full capacity has now turned around, and the Yankees and the Red Sox had COVID. There's people that aren't uh, with the vaccine. There's people that are there with the vaccine. Uh, you can't You can't turn around and have that happen. So I just think that you'd have to show or be a little bit more stricter on this, especially what you got coming on, and especially if you want to keep everybody safe in that situation. But when it comes down to forcing players and people as you were not specimens, you just cannot do that. Heard it many, many times. Don't give me no lines and keep your fucking hands to yourself, especially when it comes to me and my well-being. But Episode 50, I gave you guys a question and trivia, and they almost ruined the only hint that may have helped you guys get the right answer there. But the funny thing is, you guys had two hints on here. Um, I was hoping that somebody would catch on, and I guess that you guys really, really, this was a tough one since I had three people get this one right. And it was crazy because... We decided that we were going to go with whoever was closest on the games. So what we did was we reached out. Thank you guys all for participating, those who did for the Deacon & Co. show. Trivia, episode 50, $100 Visa gift card, Rob Riola of Patchog, New York. Rob's a big fan of the show, so he's been listening since about episode 10. 
likes the new format of the show. Thank you, Rob, for being a big fan, and I'm glad that you got this right here. So we had to reach out to the three finalists to get the answer of how many games did I see, because that was a bonus question, um, you know, for them. So I'll give it to you guys. Number five, uh, I've seen the Chargers 17 times. Uh, Number four, Metallica, which comes in with 51. Number three, the Philadelphia Eagles, I've seen them 72 times, 14 playoff games, two Super Bowls, one victory. No playoff games for the Chargers. Number two, the Los Angeles Lakers. 119 times, Rob said, I've seen the Lakers 81 times. He said, I'm going to say that because Kobe's 81-point game. And he was the closest. We priced it right. It priced. Price it right, tit it. Uh, so he got it. Came closer, came closest. Thank you for the other two contestants who participated and knew the answer, and everybody else who participated as well. Um, Lakers 119. Now here's the crazy one: 61 playoff games out of the 119 that I've gone to. 28 finals games, two clinchers. One in Boston where the Lakers were eliminated, and the other one in. Uh, I'm sorry. One in Boston where the Lakers won and one in Boston where the Lakers were eliminated. And it was very, very difficult. It really was. It was very, very difficult uh, to see that happen, And but I was there. And I've been to the finals multiple times before that. So uh, my first ever game was the NBA finals. My dad took me to when they played the Nets, and it, it was so cool. So, I mean, finals for me, going to see the Lakers in the finals, is uh, tradition. You know, it really was just crazy. So... That was uh, awesome about that. We're seeing two championships uh, plus the one is three. Also, seeing your teams lose the finals is very difficult. Rangers, I've seen the Rangers the most because the Rangers are in New York and it's easy to access to. But when these teams come to New York, uh, you definitely, you know, I believe that I'm seeing them. I'm seeing the Eagles a lot over my career um, lifespan. And the difference is with Metallica. And a lot of people thought Metallica was the answer. Like, that's awesome. But. 51 times in a short span of being a fan in eight years is different than a lifetime of being a fan of these teams. And uh, I've been a fan of these teams since I'm six years old. Uh, 462 Ranger games, 104 playoff games, two Stanley Cup Finals games for the Rangers. Um, yeah, I went to a lot of Ranger games. <laughs> uh, but it's it doesn't you know make a difference to me. Uh, if they're on the road, it doesn't make a difference if they're home, and it just makes a difference of who you're with, having a good time, and, and, you know, the love of the team, and that's the crazy thing about it. So, now, with that being said, uh, you know, hats off to you, Rob. Thank you for helping us out there with the question, and hope you do something productive with the $100 gift card. And the thing is, is when you're a different kind of fan, right, and... I turned around and I did some cool stuff, um, you know, especially coming up with the shows and everything. And I did a recording on another podcast where I was the co-host of a show where I basically had said, and I'm not going to ruin it for you guys because this individual was a guest on the Deacon and Co. show multiple times. Um, But the crazy thing about this is, uh, being a different level of a fan like this and whatnot, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that that's what I particularly choose to do with my time. I, I don't turn around, I'm not a millionaire necessarily, but to turn around and put funds away for the traveling fund is something that it should, you know, it'd be done if you're a fan of my caliber and putting away X amount of dollars per week 
uh, for you to turn around and do what you want to do with that is everyone has to enjoy things in life. And, you know, what's the point? If you don't believe in something, what's the point of living? So I believe that, you know, this is entertainment, hopefully provided to you guys. And I believe that the NFL, NHL, NBA, uh, and Metallica provide me uh, with enough entertainment to, you know, find that life is worth living, you know, they make it through every single day, and no matter what circumstances or situations happen, uh, I make it through, but, you know, that's just one person's point of view, and uh, let me get just a quick drum roll, please, because the next guest, I've been waiting a long time for him to come on, very good friend of mine, personal friend of mine, and uh, artist, Uh, so if you guys hear any noise in the background, it's not going to be me today, because my guest today is my dear friend, Chris Mason, artist, tattoo, owner of Livewire Arts and Beacon Tattoo. Mr. Mason, welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, being here. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on your show. You're on my tattoo chair. Exactly. So, again, guys, if you hear anything in the background, it's not the phone, it's not your radio, it's just a little ink going on. This is the first time that I've ever done something like this, so this is really cool. And uh, it's crazy because uh, Mr. Mason and I met a long time ago, uh, many, many years, and no one else touches me. I come to him. Uh, try to come to him as much as possible. He used to come once a month, and now it's like Mr. Mason is so crazy busy because of his great work uh, that we, we don't get to see each other as much as we like to, but we still see each other multiple times a year. <laughs> uh, Mr. Mason, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, how did you start tattooing, and uh, what, what made you want to do this? So, All right, so I was going to art school in the uh, late 80s, um, in New York City, and I was studying illustration at Parsons School of Design, and a bunch of people I knew from my class and, and other people were getting tattooed, and at the time, uh, tattooing was illegal in all five boroughs wow. of the city because there had been a hepatitis outbreak in the, uh, in the 60s, and I think from like 60... 61, between 61 and 63, they shut it all down. All the tattoo parlors were, were driven out or underground. So uh, by the time I was interested in the whole thing, there was maybe maybe less than a dozen uh, artists operating in the five boroughs and all underground. So, uh, but clearly people were getting tattooed and with a little bit of uh, legwork and research, you could either find in the New York Press or in the Village Voice ads or referrals from people who had just gotten work in a word-of-mouth thing. You could track down different kinds of artists who are accessible all over the city. And then I found out that there was actually a monthly meeting of an underground New York Tattoo Society that was meeting like the first or second uh, Monday or Tuesday of every month down in um, Alphabet City, down oh, wow. in, in one of the clubs near uh, Tompkins Square Park. So I, you know, went down there with my drawings and like trying to do research, like, all right, who can do the kind of work that I want? And because I had my sketchbooks with me, I ended up uh, accidentally getting into the industry because I met someone who had a, a supply company, like a, like a fledgling supply company, who within a year or so of meeting him, uh, he opened a tattoo shop on Canal Street and basically hired and apprenticed me at the same time. Wow. 
so I got to uh, <laughs> to learn on the job training just based on you know showing my sketchbooks like all right here's the kind of stuff I do and here's the kind of work that I want yeah and the guy suggested like oh why don't you sell me these kinds of designs and I will sell them as flash and I'll give you a commission. So that went on for a few months where every you know I gave him drawings right out of my sketchbooks, and uh, whenever, whenever I saw him, he, he'd throw me some money. That's from, awesome. From <laughs> and then he, you know, eventually came around. Uh, you know, I was I was uh, another friend of mine. We were interested in learning to tattoo, so this guy sold us like the not a starter kit, but the basic equipment that you needed, and. Uh, at his at his workshop, he and another professional tattoo artist uh, gave me in one or two sessions like enough instruction sure. to set to set me off on my way. That was awesome. And uh, the the other guy from my class, you know, we pooled our money together. He wasn't really it wasn't clicking with him at the time, so he he offered to sell me his half of the equipment. So you know, a few months later, I bought him out. Of, of our machine, our power pack, and stuff like that. And then I continued for a few months, you know, scratching on people. You know, un, unsanctioned, unprofessional, you know. Uh, I was artistically competent, but, but really didn't have any instruction, uh, hands-on instruction or real apprenticeship at the time. So, you know, I, I made some things on myself and on co-students, uh, that uh, I'm sure they're all either I covered them up later or other people covered them up. <laughs> inferior stuff, technically inferior stuff. So, uh, but I had enough okay pieces and showed enough potential that this guy, when he, when he opened his uh, his shop on Canal Street, he gave me a gig there, and I learned uh, as I went. And you know that was eighty nine, ninety nine. You know, it's like thirty over thirty years ago. Yeah. And uh, and now we're here. Well, that answered my next question about how long have you been uh, tattooing for. Yeah, a little over, let's do the math, a little over 30 years. That's awesome. Some people count their apprenticeship, you know, it's like, all right, I started tattooing whenever I first put the machine in my hand and put the needle to skin. And some people don't count that period, that learning period. They only count once they were either given the green light by their mentor or whenever they started working professionally in a shop. Um, that's why I, I can't give a hard date, but it's it's at least, you know, I'm at 51, I've been tattooing for at least 30 years and been in in the industry a little over that. So, um, definitely, yeah, it's definitely crazy uh, to be doing something that long. And, I mean, I'm imagining that, you know, not not just a tattoo artist. You are an artist. Yeah, very when, talented. When I was going to, so I was going to Parsons, and I wanted to be in. I wanted to render and paint things, and the fine art department was was too abstract based and esoteric for me at the time. So I wanted to show off traditional realism and surrealism. That's what I like to paint and draw. So the illustration department was the right place to be, but. Um, Around the same time that I started tattooing, you know, every, after every semester, there's the opportunity, like, all right, you go home for the summer, and like, are you on vacation? Do you have a job? So there was a job board at the school, and I found uh, someone, someone up in Westchester had posted, like, they were looking for decorative painting. 
They wanted they wanted the uh, well, as far as I knew, decorative painting was was faux wood or faux marble, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, but it turned out what they really were interested in was sky, sky and clouds. And then I went up to Westchester by train, you know, I was like 19 years old, and, uh, you know, very affluent, wealthy neighborhood, and uh, these people picking up at the train station, they take me to their house, it's this amazing mansion in Katona, and um, they wanted... They wanted sky and clouds and maybe some suggestions of trees. And I was looking in this little room outside of their bedroom at the top of the stairs. And I said, well, what if we brought the landscape down onto the walls and made it feel really big and open, kind of like Hudson Valley landscapes. And they were, they were interested in that. So I painted this little room over maybe a week, two-week period. And I painted it with, you know, realistic murals of, of hills and trees and valleys and streams and bushes and clouds and sky on the ceiling. I painted it for about what it would have cost to have it painted by by a house painter, just a flat color, because what did I know? Yeah. But I ended up working for these people for, uh, for years, and through them I met all these other people in the community, and it became my, my second job, or, uh, yeah, because between the tattooing between the tattooing and the mural painting, I was only, by, by junior year, I was only going to school two or three days a week, and then the rest of the week I would go up to Westchester or down the Canal Street and tattoo people. Yeah, that's awesome. So, professional working artist, graduated in 92 with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Illustration, and because I had taken over my student loan payments from my parents... I paid as I went, and I graduated with no student loan debt and a fucking minivan. <laughs> I carry my my things and ladders around. It's weird, and yeah, you know, like it's almost impossible to do that now because of how the cost of the education in general has risen. But at the time, I was well placed to take advantage of uh, a fledgling interest in um, in tattooing because it was really taking off late '80s, early '90s. And uh, and the decorative painting trend, you know, sponging, ragging, marbleizing, yeah. faux finishing, and murals uh, were just everybody who could afford it was getting it. And I was right there, and I started employing, you know, people people I went to school with, or people who had graduated before, or were going to graduate after me. And between the two things, like I've I've never had anything but. Uh, a job as a visual artist, a working visual artist. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you don't just, uh, you know, not just being a tattoo artist, being the artist as well, but you also do sculptures and wiring as well, and they're, they're pretty amazing, some of the stuff that you that you uh, produce. Yeah, that's my, my other, now my other career, so <laughs> as, as a visual artist, uh, I always, lots of, lots of artists as their training will, will uh, be trained, especially in school, in other disciplines. Like, you might think that you're going to be a painter, but you're going to learn charcoal drawing, you're going to mess around with clay, you're going to work in other, you might do collage. And, you know, you put in your skill toolbox all the things that you master, and you see what you use the rest of your career. So, along the way, when I was doing some sculpture, you learn how to use wire, as an armature, inside clay or inside papier-mâché or inside the plaster, to, to, to make things stable. 
And somewhere along the way, I had the idea, like, well, what if I just use the entire spool of of wire to make a little guy? And then conceptually, I had this idea of um, the little guy's body is entirely masked out in wire. And then the wire goes out through his hands, and I can attach it to the wall like a little climbing figure or Spider-Man-looking thing. Because figurative sculpture is usually only seen in a standing or sitting or laying down position. You can walk around it, you can walk up to it, but like you're usually not under it. Yeah. It's exotic situations where it's hanging from something. So uh, I, I was a big comic book guy, so I liked, I liked seeing dynamic anatomy from different angles, you know, flying through space. So it was like a natural putting things together. Like, oh, okay. So I started making these little wire guys uh, once in a while. And then I kind of put it away. I wasn't doing anything with them. I'd just make them every once in a while. So then I was living out in California in the early 2000s, and my cousin was having a birthday. So uh, I wanted to make her something instead of buying her something. And I, I busted out some little spool of wire. You know, everyone seems to have like a little craft wire in a toolbox someplace. <laughs> and I made, had enough wire to make two little people, climbing people, that were maybe four or five inches each with maybe a 12 or 14 inch rope coming for, well, you know, wire going through their hands. And I gave them to my cousin and I said, oh, I got you some wire hangers. You know, I like the puns. And the idea was, you know, you hang them on the wall and it could be like a visual um, play on the, is the glass half full or half empty? So an optimistic person might say, like, oh, you know, these figures are climbing. And the pessimist would say, oh, no, they're, they're coming down, they're descending. <laughs> and it, so it became like a punny way to, to gauge the, the attitude of the viewer at the time. Oh, they're just hanging there. Yeah. But um, she loved them. Everyone was starting, like, started flipping out. And then, strangely enough, living, living in Los Angeles and uh, painting murals, I was tattooing on... Um, tattooing at uh, two shops, one or two days a week at each shop, because I made friends in that community. So I was working on Melrose, near where I lived in West Hollywood, at uh, Body Electric Tattoo, and then I was working uh, on busy days out in Venice Beach at Tattoo Asylum, Andy Neville's Tattoo Asylum. And Andy's wife, and then ex-wife, but his, his wife was uh, a former... Playboy model, playmate, and uh, she was still friends with Hugh Hefner's wife at the time, Kimberly Conrad Hefner, who, um, she had two little boys by Hef, and even though they were separated, she lived next door. That's awesome. And, uh, like, next door, it was the same property, but she had a separate house at the Playboy Mansion, at that property in Homeby Hills. And then she, uh, she was looking for murals for her kids' rooms. I think uh, the two youngest boys were uh, 9 and 11, Morrison and Cooper. And it was during the Laker dynasty. <laughs> Good transition. Oh, the, yeah. So Shaq and Kobe were dominating the world. Dominating the world. <laughs> just just an unbeatable team. And, and everything gelled with the Lakers at that time, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Phil Jackson is just the, the kingmaker, the, the, the right combination of Zen master and a uh, former player, and just like, yeah. motivated people, and gave them strategies, and ways of, like, and assembled that team. Like, think about 
think about how good a team the Lakers were at that time with with uh, Dennis Rodman on there. Oh, yeah. Checked all the boxes, like, oh, yeah. like like a mini dream team, but all in one team. Exactly. And uh, so the older of the two Hefner boys wanted um, Shaq and Kobe in his bedroom in the Staples Center with him as a child wearing uh, a uniform of his own design, dunking on them. Oh, wow. So I found these pictures and... Uh, reference pictures and put together this whole scene and then there was a crowd scene in the background that had um, made up people, famous people and actual family members. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and they gave me uh, after that project, then I did the other kid's room, his, Cooper's dream team and he had very specific, you know, he wanted Alan Iverson, oh, wow. he wanted uh, Vince Carter, like he... he he knew what he wanted. He wanted Scotty Pippen. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, both, both the kids were actually really good at basketball and very into what was going on. And it, it gave me, a, like, a surreal, wonderful entrance into a whole new client base. Oh, yeah. But I, I was tattooing the whole time. Yeah. Like, like th that was always my job. I had frequently worked six, seven days a week doing stuff. And uh, I've, I've always been... Very productive. Yeah. Well, the funny thing about that is, is that knowing you for 15 years, I can't believe that you kept that story from me. But thank you for there. <laughs> yeah, you did. I'll, I'll show you the pictures too. I have pictures of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I never, see, I never uh, heard that before, guys. You know, Deacon is Laker Nation here. But uh, the one difference about that, and not to get uh, too crazy in this, because we got a little more Lakers talk uh, coming up later on. But the the thing is, is that that team that that Mr. Mason just mentioned that gelled so well. He didn't have the stress of the Chicago Bulls management. Absolutely. Dr. Buss was not going to tell you, no, you're not going to do something. Dr. Jerry Buss facilitated that team and, and everything that um, everything that Sweet Phil Jackson wanted to make happen seemed to happen. And you know, that, that dynasty, like you could hold that team up against any other championship team and they would do really well. Yeah. And arguably, possibly even against the... Uh, and this is alternate reality stuff, but imagine Sweet Philly Jackson's uh, Chicago Bulls yeah. versus uh, Phil Jackson's uh, Lakers, L.A. Lakers. Yeah. It's a hypothetical, but... Oh, I, that's so tough. I mean... I, right, I, it's worth investigating uh, philosophically. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I mean, realistically on that, uh, I mean, yeah, of the third of the third, uh -huh. right, uh, I would say that that Lakers team... What was the best team that could have beaten that Bulls team? But that Bulls team was too powerful. Yeah, I mean that's. I I am a lifelong Celtics fan. <laughs> so you know you, you hear me speaking glowingly of the Lakers. It's just because I'm also a, a practical historical. Um, I I like histor history and I like facts and it's undeniable how good their raw talent was. I'm still not rooting for them, <laughs> but I appreciate the the rivalry. And that, that's the other thing. Like it's it's easy to be a Michael Jordan fan and a Bulls fan just because of the the supreme excellence of everything that was going on. Oh, Even yeah. if you're a casual observer, you're like, oh, he's better at this than everybody who's ever even tried. Exactly. That's worth watching. Oh yeah. But you know, if you're a real fan, you you stick. And you know, as a lifelong Celtics fan, I waded through. Decades of 
Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm still here. Yeah, that is. I've I've uh, I've always known you to be the big Celtics fan. That was one of the craziest things when I, you know, first thing, uh, especially too with some of the crazy things that I do. But you hear like myself too. I'm never going to say a bad thing about the Boston Celtics and their organization and, and just, you know, the the team itself is just, the history is too much. Yeah, you can't lie about how good they are. Like, the, they led the league. They had the, that, that eight, uh, what is it, eight-time uh, repeat championship run. Yeah. And overall, I think they have, uh, as, as a franchise, more wins than everybody else. Yeah. Uh, and look, look at how deep the Hall of Famers oh, are, yeah. not just in um, firsts, but really, really like we we talked before about um, uh, uh, Bill Russell. Yeah. Like social firsts. Yeah. You know, like uh, a 1950s, 60s era player, first first black uh, coach in the league. Sure. Yeah. And all kinds of the rivalry talk about a rivalry it wasn't Lakers Celtics it was uh, Sixers and Celtics at the time when when Wilt Chamberlain came in yeah you know you had a six foot ten guy in Bill Russell and then you had a seven foot one guy in Wilt Distilt yeah who um, it changed the game forever like it became a huge man sport yeah and uh, and rivalries like that really drove a lot of the fandom you know, city versus city. You you had your arch nemesis, but it made you play better. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree with that. And some of the things that Boston did over the years, because I, I truthfully feel, and I think that you're in agreement on this, that uh, the Lakers and Boston rivalry in the '80s uh, saved basketball. Absolutely, because uh, the dynamic between at that time, well, two the, the greatest players in the world were Magic Johnson and and uh, Larry Bird. Oh yeah. And they had an amazing dynamic where they could razz each other and play, bring out the best in each other, and still maintain, apparently, like nobody knows except them how much they really like each other, but it seems like they they were friends forever. Yeah. Where not everybody else who played the sport were friends. Some some people really hated each other. Oh, yeah. And couldn't, couldn't uh, be seen together off the court. Yeah. I mean, talk about that era. You're, you're talking between the two, uh, eight out of the ten years, uh, championships between either the Lakers or the Celtics. Yeah. Uh, and that that team, you know, uh, Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and uh, Bob Parrish and just, just everything clicked. Yeah. Uh, East and West, because it was never a blowout. Even though the Celtics won mo- most of those uh, champions uh, against the Lakers, it was so close. Oh, yeah. And uh, Mag- Magic Johnson was magic. Yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is, is... Oh, yeah. Think about how great. Like, I don't want a blowout. I don't like watching a blowout in any professional sport. Oh, yeah. I like a contest between uh, opponents who have a decent chance of being champions. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the, the crazy thing about that, too, is just uh, the things that, you know, happened in that. You had, you had Danny Ainge... Get hurt Danny in a couple Ames. Of, oh my God! A couple, a couple of hurts in those finals. Yeah. You had Kareem go down with a broken ankle. Yeah. And it was Magic and Larry, like you said, who who took these, you know. And, and I really do feel that ESPN did a good program, thirty for thirty, on this rivalry. Yeah. I gotta catch that if you guys haven't. You know, I'll post some links to the Deacon and Coach Show Twitter page. Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. 
Uh, go back on Bill Russell. Uh, so underrated. I know a lot of people respect him or not, but uh, 12. 12 it, championships. Yeah. Is it, and a generational thing, like, you know, I'm, I'm 51, so my father's generation and people my age just have at the fringe because I heard about when, when, I, when I was first becoming aware of sports and basketball in particular, uh, Bill was like at the end of his, he was uh, doing coaching. Yeah. And moving around, and he had already had his very, uh, very traumatizing break with the Celtics, where he, he severed all ties. And I haven't, even in my own research, I like to look things up, like, there, there doesn't seem to be one thing that's been made public, but I can imagine what the stresses were, uh, being the age he was, and being in that town, uh, and, yeah. The racism of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s that he grew up and, and worked in, but but um, he's so important to professional sports and basketball and to the, the Celtics as a franchise. Oh yeah. And uh, I know that you know they retired his number and and every every one of my basketball heroes that played and were active when I was coming up, they all seem to acknowledge. Uh, his importance and and uh, position in sports history and basketball history. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, going into the basketball aspect of things, and obviously we know that COVID changed things up a lot with everything, but especially with our next topic here, uh, Team USA starting off 0 and 2. None of the big boys are playing. They're putting <laughs> the team together. LeBron's done. AD's done. Right. Uh, you know, uh, this might be the year that someone else gets the gold medal, but I hope not. Right. Uh, <laughs> I always hope. I want the best team to win, but, you know, for the era that I grew up in, Olympic-wise, um, so during the Cold War, the whole idea of professional sports versus amateur sports was professionals got paid, and they, they existed at a different level of pressure. Amateur athletes were supposed to be either still in school or not. They didn't have uh, endorsement ship deals or so... Um, Big picture, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when the Soviet Union was, you know, on the other side of the planet doing things their philosophical way, they had athletes who were kicking the shit out of the world. Yeah. But objectively, those were really not uh, amateur athletes. They were state-sponsored professional athletes who were not compensated monetarily, you know, yeah. for whatever they were doing. So across the board, their access to training technologies and supplements and uh, mm, there's definitely been uncovered uh, and there's documentaries about this like they had experimental treatments and yeah. hormones and you know surgeries in some cases like there's a famous story about uh, I'm not sure if it was men or women's team I think it was a men's swimmer who had actually had webs surgically put between his fingers. And it was another uh, athlete who, when you know they had their goggles, he looked over and he saw that, you know, normally you cup your hands when you swim in, the, in those strokes. Yeah. And this guy had his hands, like, wide open and he was beating everybody. Yeah. And they're like, let's shake his hands and see what's going on. He wouldn't shake hands. And they're like, look, he's got webs. And he wasn't born that way. Like, yeah. that level of cheating... For the glory of Mother Russia, and look, you know they they got caught doing their doping or having you know the, all the jokes in the seventies about like, oh yeah, the the East German uh, women powerlifting team, and it was a bunch of uh, people with pigtails who had mustaches. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, 
it was a strange time growing up because you didn't get it didn't feel like you had an objective view of uh, excellence in sports. Yeah. It was it was more like you know Rocky uh, Rocky three had that whole scenario like yeah. Ivan Drago who was yeah he was a big dude but he was also using all this space age stuff and getting weird injections and he became like a, a robot. Yeah. And then Rocky goes back to you know punching meat and doing sit-ups upside down in a barn and running through snow. Yeah. <laughs> he gets to win even though he's a foot shorter. <laughs> but um, I I liked that that first dream team that had Jordan and, and Charles Barkley and like they just grabbed everybody at the time who was the top in the field. Yeah. They're like, all right, Soviet Union and the rest of the world, you want to see what the best can do? Yeah, try it. <laughs> and ridiculous, you know, double, triple digit leads. Yeah. Uh, I was like, here, you want fair? This is your idea of fair? This is what this is. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the point was made, but the rest of the world is like, oh, okay. If, if It's no longer about amateur excellence. It's just about excellence in, in competition. Oh, yeah. Then whoever is the best that has your nationality gets to represent you. Yeah. I like that idea. I like that idea. Yeah. I definitely, and especially on that squad too. That was that was the untouchable squad. Oh the God. dream team was such <laughs> a pleasure. They, they beat Japan by like uh, ninety or a hundred points. Oh yeah. This just wasn't fair. And like, look, Japan, they're historically a nation of shorter, slighter buildings, but there's there's big, super talented uh, yeah. people there. People who can make, you know, Muggsy Bowes and, and Spud Webb were short guys who could dunk. Like the rest of the world, if you can bring it, you can play. Yeah. Uh, but. At the time, the actual best people in the world were all on the same team, and they were all from USA. That's that's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah, it definitely was. Now, a couple of the controversies going on. I know uh, that Russia is still cheating and doing their things. Now, are they disqualified <laughs> from this year's, or was that last Olympics that they are disqualified and they weren't able to have any representatives? I'm not. I'm not sure. I haven't. Uh, the thing that has captured my attention in in sports currently. Uh, definitely in this Olympics because it seems like they're not being each part of the Olympic Regulatory Commission is having different decisions. So like, you know, everybody's aware of um, the spectrum of gender expression that is becoming more mainstream in, in awareness. Like, people have always expressed I'm, I, I feel this way, I dress this way, I'm attracted to this group of people and we're at a really nice educated place in history where most people will agree that uh, everything is okay between consenting adults. You wear what you want to wear, you, you love who you want to love, and most people can get on board and say, yeah, that, that's fine. But when you come down to professional uh, athletics, especially combat athletics, you know, like, like MMA or boxing, like judo or taekwondo, and now go to even the things that are not combat related, where you're measuring physicality versus physicality. My current state of thought on this is it is not fair to let uh, whoever wants to just compete in whatever category they identify with, because you need to go deeper on why we even split sports into uh, traditionally um, dimorphous. You know, it's either men versus men, women versus women, or in special cases, like we talked about, like uh, in tennis, where you have mixed doubles. Yeah. Uh, we want fairness, because what we're trying to measure is 
how good, how excellent is your combination of base physicality and genetics and your training regimen? That's yeah. what we're measuring. Oh, yeah. So if your base physicality is, is male, and speaking, speaking as a layperson with an interest in science, like this, this is not my field, but I've definitely studied it uh, more than other people who don't have a personal interest. Yeah. I like things. <laughs> I, like, I like knowing some things and thinking about it. Uh, but the idea is, if you identify as something, you can live that way in the world. But you can't say, uh, I identify as female even though I have fe uh, male biology, and then compete against females who are biologically in line with their with their perception of themselves. Yeah. Because 99% of the time, given equal access to nutrition and training, biological males are going to be physically dominant for basic reasons of evolution. You can find an individual that is uh, demonstrably male or female who's actually at the other end of the spectrum. Like, you can find a small... Uh, physically less imposing male who's on par with majority of females in any particular sport, or you can find the anomalous female who's bigger and stronger and has better endurance than the vast majority of males. But yeah. those are anomalies. Yeah. And it really is not uh, good for the goose, good for the gander, because like we were talking about, if you're a high school, if you're a high school athlete and you're female, and you want to play on the football team, most most municipalities don't have a football team. But if you're strong enough and fast enough and can remember the plays, then you could try out for some teams, some municipalities will let you play. And sometimes it makes the local or the national news. This girl's playing football over here. Oh, yeah. And we're like, oh, good for her. You know, you can do whatever you want. But they don't really go into the logical argument, which is, the kid who got cut from the boys' uh, lacrosse team for not being as fast and strong as the majority of the other players on the team is probably physically dominant enough to play on the girls' field hockey team yeah. and be a star. Yeah. And that really wouldn't be fair because he's displacing, potentially, someone who... Uh, so what I'm talking about is if everything was like, well, everyone is free to do whatever they want. And we were just like, well, you want to make the football team? Here, yeah. it's open for boys and girls. All the top slots are going to be filled by biological males most of the time. Yeah. And we don't want to go back that way because in ancient times, the Olympics, as far as we know, the very first measure of tribe versus tribe physical prowess was uh, all male, naked, <laughs> seeing who could run the fastest, throw, uh, throw the farthest, punch the hardest, yeah. wrestle the other person down, all kinds of other things. Uh, and even though there's great stories from history and mythology, like there's this story of Atalanta, you know, the, the, who was super, super fast, and she beat everybody in running. And her father, you know, the king promised her to whoever could beat, whoever could win this race. And then she ran in the race, and she beat everybody except this one guy. Uh, he ran as fast as she did, so they decided to hold hands and cross the finish line together. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story, but like the whole point is 
the vast majority of males are physically dominant over females in that kind of competition. Yeah. For biological reasons, in the same way that biological males, uh, you know, everyone throws that it's fucking easy, but biological males don't have children. Yeah. Not all women can can have or want to have children, but like the reason mammals and vertebrates and primates are dimorphous predominantly is an evolutionary adaptation. I think the science is pretty well established on that and it makes sense logically. But we are different. Humans do all kinds of things that have nothing to do with evolution except that the impulse comes from there. Like you need food to eat, you need rest to repair, you get horny because the reproductive urge perpetuates the species. But you can eat or not eat things based on a desire to be thinner or to just eat food that entertains you even though you're not hungry, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like ice cream cake. Or you can eat food that has no nutritional value, like diet ice cream cake. Yeah. No nutrition, no calories, no, it's lactose-free, so like no calcium. It's just sugar and oil that have been modified to pass through your body for entertainment. Yeah. Same thing, like you can do things sexually that are just like, all right, we're trying to get pregnant, we're trying to have a baby. Or you could do fetish things that satisfy your sexual urge that have absolutely nothing to do with insertion or friction or nudity, like yeah. tickle fetish. I always throw this out. Like, there are people <laughs> who get off being tied up and tickled yeah. until both parties uh, achieve satisfaction. But the part of your brain that's enjoying that is the part that historically makes mating happen for all primates and all vertebrates and all mammals and all... Like, yeah. In our observation. So big picture, small picture. You know why we do things, but we also do things that we don't know why we do them because now they don't even make sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's worth thinking about occasionally. Why do, why do we do this? <laughs> yeah, definitely crazy. Uh, you know, some of the things that they have going on with the actual, uh, you know, Olympics that they do are definitely crazy, and I think you're right. I think you hit it where, uh, you know, crazy madness of just being unfair, and, you know, it's definitely an advantage. If you're good at something, and you want to see how good, you want to measure against your peers first. Exactly. Because, like, an adult is stronger than a child. Someone who goes to the gym all the time is probably stronger than someone who's uh, a couch potato. Yeah. But... Sports are, is about measuring excellence between people who are trying to do the same thing and have equal access to training yeah. and opportunity. So when you say, like, all right, let's do open uh, competition, who can pick up this rock? Yeah. Like, world, World's Strongest Man competition. It's called the World's Strongest Man competition because... It's historically dominated by and, and look at look at who wins usually. You know, the top the dominant players come from specific parts of the world that have an emphasis on uh farming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, can you pick up this tractor? <laughs> because yeah. because the the jack is broken. So, you know, like who's that guy? Marius Pujanowski. Guys from Iceland, guys from... Uh, uh, there's plenty of super strong people from all over the world. Oh, yeah. But there's a disproportionately high number of people with that kind of, I can pick up this barrel, I can pick up this boulder, I can throw, like, think of Scottish Highland Games. I'm going to take a yeah. telephone pole and flip it end over end. Yeah. What practical use does this have in, in the real world? <laughs> None, because we're not assaulting each other's castles anymore. But, yeah. But oh, yeah. we're here now. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. That's definitely crazy. Mr. Uh, Mason, I ask everybody that comes on the show, this is definitely one of my big topics. You know, obviously, what kind of crazy maniac fan I am, but what was your first introduction to Metallica? All right, so, uh, being in high school, <laughs> high school and junior high, in uh, the mid-late 80s, I graduated in 88, uh, I became aware of... Um, Metal and hair were almost the same thing at the time. And I can remember like Bon Jovi and Metallica and Rat being on tour together yeah. at some point while I was in high school. But I was I was first aware of Rat because MTV was, was happening and Rat had that cool video for Round and Round. And oh, yeah. Who that's are a, these guys? That's their biggest hit, I think. Yeah. Ra- round and Round was like, Ugh. and you know, it's like Mad Max looking post-apocalyptic <laughs> shredded people with headbands and Slinking around is like very interesting sonically and visually. So I was a fan of them, and then Bon Jovi hit, and it was just undeniable because even though I think oh, it's a pretty boy band, but clearly everybody liked to listen to it, and there were a couple of songs like that, you know, the uh, the cow on the cowboy. Yeah, yeah. Dead or alive was Dead like. Or alive, yeah. Everybody liked to listen to it. It had these things like you'd hear the strain, the twelve string intro to that, and like. And girls liked Bon Jovi, so if you were playing Bon Jovi, girls came around. <laughs> girls didn't really like Metallica. Yeah. There were a few girls who were into, like, Metallica and Megadeth, but, like, they were usually smoking at the telephone pole across the street, cutting class, and, like, they were kind of antisocial unless you were also a real metalhead. Yeah. And I wasn't a metalhead. I listened, I always listened to a lot of things. But when, uh, you know, the, the thing that put Metallica on my radar was, uh, it must have been one... You know, um, which wasn't released on Kill 'Em All first, uh, or Injustice for All. Injustice for All, yeah. Right. That was their first music video. Right, right. And, uh, you know, most people in my generation, I'm the television generation kid, and MTV captured my attention and imagination. And that video, for one, was even more uh, impactful for me because I knew the story that it was from. It's yeah. from the the movie Johnny Got His Gun. Yeah. 1971. It was this anti-war picture that was set in World War One, and uh, you know it's about a, a a soldier who gets blown up by an artillery explosion and has his arms and legs and face blown off. So he exists alive, but he doesn't know if he's awake or if he's asleep. Yeah. And uh, he can only communicate through Morse code by tapping his head. But he's deaf. His eardrums are blown out. He can't smell or taste anything. They're catheterized him. They've got him on a feeding tube. And he just wants to die. And they won't let him die. And even though, like, at one point in the movie, a nurse tries to smother him. Or uh, she clips his uh, breathing tube. And he's like, thank you, thank you. And then, then they, they discover her. And, like, the movie ends very bleakly with him continuing to exist and, and basically going insane. Yeah. And, you know the members of Metallica, who are only a few years older than me, they saw this movie, probably Late Night Rerun, and it inspired them to write this song. Yeah. So uh, I think in real life they actually bought the rights to the movie so that they didn't have to continually pay for it when they showed clips from it in, in the video. Yeah, and in concerts too. Yeah, uh, right. They, yeah. They, own, they own the licensing. Awesome. And, uh, I mean, like, there's, there's really interesting things about, um, you know, what they did sonically, uh, the way that song is built. Yeah. You, you know, it's like, it's here, look, peace time, and then it, it degenerates into a cacophony of battle, 
And then the horror of war, both being murdered and disfigured and, and surviving, how horrible that can be. Like, sometimes surviving a battle is not the best scenario. Oh, yeah. So, that, yeah, that, that song is still... It doesn't always make me happy, but I always, I always kind of, uh, it's worth listening to. Oh, yeah. Um, but that being said, like, do you have a favorite album or a favorite song? That one is definitely my favorite Metallica song. I love Battery. Battery charges me up in a good way. And again, Battery is one of those songs with the, with the quiet, uh, flamenco guitar. Yeah. And then just pumping you up. The lead up. Yeah. If you're going to do something, I can remember, uh, Battery, I became super familiar with in college because I was taking an animation class and, uh, one, one of my friends was using it. You know, you had to make like a little clip. And uh, he made this video. We we were all paired up, like, all right, two people are going to work on two characters for this little snippet. And uh, my friend and I were doing like a Danny Elfman snippet, but this other friend of ours was doing uh, Battery, and I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> and I really went deep on it. Then I was like, I, I I love this song. I love how it makes me feel. And even if I don't seek it out, if I hear part of it, I'm like, oh, wait, we got to wait for it to kick in. It's like some people with Phil Collins in the in the air tonight. Yeah. Like, if it comes on in the radio, you have to stay until the doo-doo, doo-doo. Yeah. The battery is like that. Yeah. You That's all right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> now, your opinion, uh, Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning, what's that better album? Ooh, all together. Uh, That's so tough. I mean... Uh, I'm going to say Ride the Lightning, yeah. but it's so close. Yeah, it's so close. I got another one. See, there it is, guys. Take a listen to Ride the Lightning if you haven't heard it that, over that. But uh, yeah. you have a favorite memory? Like, you've seen them in concert, I'm sure, a few times. Like, is there any cool specifically for us? All right, so... Um, a really cool... Not personal memory. Like, um... So, recently... Uh, Metallica was on this show a couple of years ago, uh, Billions. Yeah, yeah. It was a Showtime show. And the main character got to go up to, uh, you know, the, the main character is a billionaire and he, he, he's backstage at this thing after a private showing for a bunch of wealthy people. And he's talking to James, like, uh, you know, James, sometimes I'm just, uh, I'm so brought down, and uh, I don't know what. What do you do? What what takes you? Up? And James Hetfield is there, you know, playing and stuff. He's like, I just play, man. I just play. <laughs> and uh, like, my I have a personal connection to the show because my my kids were on like two episodes. My yeah. Kids do some acting, and uh, Damian Lewis, who plays this axe character, who had that interaction. We interacted with him, and uh, seeing seeing him uh, go through his like, you know, he's a pretty well known, accomplished actor, but thinking about like you I'm one degree of Kevin Bacon away from Metallica now because my kids work with Damian Lewis and Damian Lewis worked with uh Lars and James. <laughs> I, I think I think the whole band was there, but definitely the scene had Lars and James. That's awesome. So yeah, I like, you know, proximity to the greatness. Definitely gotta check it out. And just, just as I mentioned many times, uh, you know, especially to last week and whatnot uh, you know, episode 50. I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's a milestone episode. As I mentioned earlier, this is episode 51. And uh, the crazy thing is is that you never actually realize just how many movies, shows, and commercials Metallica's music is featured They're in. everywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but uh, Genius of the Week, Mr. Mason, a segment of the show where I call out somebody for being, uh, well, a genius. 
And uh, last week we had a tournament style. I know you're a fan of the show. You caught, uh, you know, catch it when you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we had Genius of the Year was going to a gentleman who uh, robbed the bank, uh, <laughs> got away with it, and then two weeks later went and deposited the money back into his account from the bank he robbed it from. Uh. Genius, because that's how we got caught. <laughs> Sarcastic genius. Oh, yeah. So this week's genius was, was uh, my nephew shared a birthday with one of our big fans a couple of weeks ago, uh, Lenny uh, from Ozone Park, and uh, we turned around and I took him to Adventureland. And uh, th- sometimes, like, I hate when this stuff happens, because, you know, obviously, you know, Adventureland is for kids. Uh, if you want to go to the, you know, adults can go there, too, but if you want to go to the real parks, you go to the real parks. You know, right. let the kids play with you. You go to Great Adventure. You yeah. Go so we had this guy come on the teacups. And uh, right before the ride started going on, he just started swirling and spinning as fast as he could. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Ride started going on. I guess he was a little bit more rougher than he expected. Hopped out of the ride while it was still moving <laughs> to get off the ride and ha- hurl on two little kids. Oh, my God. Right over the thing. And now I'm saying that if that's my kids, I'm going to fucking flip out. You know, and it's like, it, you can't do that to a kid or whatnot. But uh, parents were cool. You know, the guy was very apologetic or whatnot, but uh, I was sitting next to those kids. Uh, they weren't, you know, my nephews, but I was sitting next to them, and uh, he was about two inches away from nailing me. Uh-huh. So I, was, I don't know how I would have reacted, because you're not drinking, you're not drunk, you're just doing something stupid in a kid's place of, of really, a kid's place of business. Because yeah. kids are the ones that should be there, not, you know, someone who's 25, 26 years old yeah. getting stoned going on rides. He ruined Christmas. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Mason, bringing it down into rapids here. Uh, Two-minute segment, uh, just go back and forth, hot potato style. Uh, three simple questions. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe they're not simple. But uh, going back to the Metallica chat, uh, you said it yourself, uh, one, amazing, how amazing that song is. But is one better than Master of Puppets for their best song? For me, it is. I, you know, like... I don't think there's an objective way to say one is better than the other, but if I were in court and defending it, I was like, all right, look, the the duration of the song and the journey that it takes you on and the deepness of the the backstory is uh, is deeper for me with one because it's historical and uh, Master of Puppets, you know, is it definitely it's a takedown of power structures yeah. and uh, a call to action. For uh, you know, here's what's wrong, and and here's what we have to do about it. <laughs> yep. That that's valid, and that's what makes them so close in in uh, greatness. Oh yeah. But one still has the edge for me. Awesome. Uh, to me, I always choose. Everybody knows Puppet Master here, yeah. Master of Puppets. But the thing is, with with uh, Master of Puppets, besides Smoke on the Water, there is <laughs> no more famous riff in rock and roll history or heavy rock history. <laughs> And that's how you know what you're getting into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's up there. This one might be a little difficult, Mr. Mason. What is your favorite piece that you have done as a tattoo artist? I don't think I have a single favorite. Uh, there's definitely genres uh, that I prefer over others. Like I, I like doing uh, things that showcase my abilities, um, things that let me render or compose. Like I like fantasy things. I have uh, the love of uh, Japanese-style tattoos and the layout, especially anything dragon-related. I'm always going to go towards it's, it's what my tattoos are. Um, and I... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll always go to something that's a picture. I prefer that to just straight lettering or, or straight ornamental tribal. I, I want pictures of things. Very nice. 
Last one here, and this is probably, and, and there's no, there's no, uh, you know, this is a judge-free answer, okay? <laughs> Lakers, Celtics, 17 titles each, highest in all basketball, only the Yankees in Montreal have more in all sports, uh, Montreal Canadiens, and uh, who's the better franchise? Who gets the 18 first? Uh, I, I my fingers crossed it's the Celtics. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm holding out. You know, there's some things happening now that are, are very interesting and keep me optimistic. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna side. I can't be so objective. I'm always gonna, I'm gonna pick my team, Celtics. Very nice. But you know how close it is. It is close. Uh, it's tough for me. I think they're both the best franchises in basketball history. I think that again, as we spoke about, they saved basketball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and made basketball what it is today. And uh, if anybody thought the rivalry died in the 90s because they didn't play each other, it was back in the 2000s. And Kobe played them back-to-back years, lost one and won one. Right, right. Yeah, definitely crazy. But, Mr. Mason, i got to thank you, man, for coming and doing this today. Well, I came to you, but... <laughs> okay. Thanks for coming here, Tattoos. Yeah, definitely. Your, uh, your oh, yeah, de- <laughs> definitely. But um, tell the audience of Deacon and Kosha where they can find you and reach you and how they can get tattoos if you want to do... Check out uh, Mr. Mason's catalog. You are on Instagram, Chris Mason Tattoo. Yes, at Chris Mason Tattoo, at Livewire Arts, uh, and also uh, I am the owner. Although I'm predominantly at uh, Livewire Arts, I have another shop in West Babylon called Beacon Tattoo at Beacon Tattoo, and the two shops are not that far apart, but they're set up differently. Like Beacon is our is our uh, you know same day service, eventually walk in shop. We have piercing over there, and uh, Livewire is more of a working art studio, and I do more more uh, appointment-based, larger projects here. So check me out. Definitely. Definitely give Mr. Mason a check out. If you guys need anything, just make sure you let him know that you are friends with Deacon and you heard him on the Deacon and Co. show. Follow me on the majors of social uh, Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to leave a line, deaconandcoshow at gmail.com. But for now, Mr. Mason and Deacon are out.